Monty Python's Flying Circus tonight comes to you live from the Grillomat snack bar, Painton. <laughs> Hello to you live from the Grillomat snack bar, Painton. And so, uh, without any more ado, let's have the titles. It's the Stephen Orell's Podcast, brought to you by Hogshead Coffee, the specialty brew with the great taste of pork. I apologise for that, but I think you'll find this a bit more interesting. Monty Python's a flying circus. And now for the first item this evening on the menu. The team has chosen as a little hors d'oeuvre an item, and I think we can be sure it won't be an ordinary item. In fact, the team told me just before the show that anything could happen and probably would. <laughs> so, let's have the item. another episode of the Stephen or Else podcast, the most important podcast in all of human history. I'm your host, Stephen, and in this episode, we're going to talk about Monty Python, and that's all we're going to talk about. It's going to be Monty Python all day, every day, except just in this episode. So really, it's all day, every day, only if you listen to the episode all day, every day. Now, I could do it in more than one episode, and frankly, I really struggled with how I was going to put this show together, because... I am very steeped in Monty Python lore, not to put too fine a point on it, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to stretch this out too long. I don't know what everybody wants. I don't know what y'all are looking for when it comes to the Monty Python. And if you listen to this episode and you decide, hey, I want more, then we can do more. I mean, at one point when I was making some notes for the episode, I, I decided I was going to write down some some sketches from the show and from the album and from the movies to highlight. And there were just way too many of them. And I, I mean, I could literally do one episode per every show or one episode per every episode of The Flying Circus. That's 45 episodes. I could do one episode for each movie. I could do one episode for each album. We're talking over 50 episodes if if you really wanted to get into the weeds, but I don't think anybody wants to get into the weeds. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do this in three different segments. Segment one is going to be a brief history of Monty Python, and it's probably going to be the longer of the three segments. Segment number two is going to be my history with Monty Python. How did I discover Monty Python? Uh, how it affected me, that kind of stuff. And that, I don't know, that may be the longer of the three segments. Segment number three, I'm going to try really hard to put together my top five favorite sketches from the television show. And as I'm recording this, I realized I haven't put that together yet. So that should be fun when we get to that point. I know what my number one favorite sketches, but beyond that, maybe I'll just talk about some of my favorite sketches. So after you listen to the episode, if you decide that you do want more, that this just was not enough, and you want me to be the one to tell you more, then let me know, and maybe we can do another episode. Um, 
otherwise, at the end, uh, I'm going to recommend some books and some uh, documentaries you can watch if you want more information because you're going to get you're gonna, probably going to get more entertained out of that than you will from me. I mean, I'm a pretty entertaining guy, but I can only do so much. I'm one person. So listen to the listen to the episode. Tell me what you think afterwards. And uh, if we if if you want more, I'll do more. Otherwise, we'll just go on with our normal podcast as uh, normal. Yeah. So let's get into some Monty Python already. But first, let's pause for a word from our sponsor. This week's episode of the Stephen or Else podcast is brought to you by Hogshead Coffee, the coffee with the great taste of pork. Once in a generation, a product hits the market with such mass appeal that shoppers from all corners of the globe flock to their local grocery store, mall, or big box retail outlet. Many innocents die, trampled to death by a mob of greedy consumers who have nothing more on their collective minds than procuring this latest innovation that society has deemed the next big must-have thing. Such products include Cabbage Patch Dolls, Tickle Me Elmo, Pickle in a Sack, and now, Hogshead Coffee. Hogshead Coffee brings you a flavor that is both unique and robust. The good folks of Hogshead Coffee use only the richest of beans grown special in the wilds of Madagascar. These wonderful little beans are then fed to a blue ribbon prize winning hog from Kansas named Daisy. It's here in a specially designed lab and under the most rigorous quality controlled conditions that Hogshead scientists spend hours a day picking the partially digested beans from Daisy's fecal matter before bringing them to you. It's this process that gives Hogshead Coffee that great taste of pork that you, the selective coffee drinker of great taste, have grown to love and demand. Hogshead Coffee, the only coffee with the unbridled taste of swine. From the makers of sheep bladder ice cream. Monty Python is made up of six individuals. Five of them are British, the sixth is American. So let's just run down the six, shall we? We have John Cleese, he's the tall one. Michael Palin, he's the nice one. Terry Jones, he's the Welsh one. Eric Idle, he's the greedy one. Terry Gilliam, he's the American one. And Graham Chapman, who is unfortunately the dead one. So they all met in college, not in the same college. Uh, Eric, John and Graham all attended Cambridge University. Uh, Eric started the year after Graham and John, but they all met there. Uh, Terry Jones and Michael Palin, uh, they attended Oxford University. That's where they met. And they all, each each of the two colleges had their own uh, comedy troupe um, that they, they each wrote and performed for. Um. And Terry Gilliam, of course, was living in America at the time. Um, John Cleese, well, okay, so at one point, John Cleese and Graham Chapman, they, the, their uh, show that they did for Cambridge, um, and I think they, it was actually, it toured in America, and it was actually called the Cambridge Circus. And that's where um, Terry Gilliam met John Cleese. Terry Gilliam was editing, uh, he was doing a, a, a magazine at the time, for his college called help. And they do, they did these, uh, cartoons, uh, well, comics that were basically 
photographs of people with word balloons. They would set it all up and set up all the scenes and take photographs of the act. You, you call them actors, I guess, in various poses to tell a story. And then they would add the word balloons and whatnot. And Terry Gilliam really liked the way John Cleese made faces. So he uh, hired him and put him in a comic about a man who falls in love with his daughter's Barbie doll. So after college, uh, the three guys from Cambridge and the two guys from Oxford all went to work for the BBC, writing and performing on various shows. Um, eventually, Terry Gilliam came to uh, England, to London, and he was hooked up with Michael Palin and Terry Jones, and they did a show called uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set, and I believe Eric Idle was on that show with him. It was a children's show, and it also featured... Um, the Bonzo Doodah Band, I think they were called. Um, and that is almost the the premise from where they got the idea for Python. So, so at some point, I guess, John Cleese, who was probably the most famous of them at that time, he had performed more on television than any of them. He is offered uh, to do a show for the BBC, and he wants to do a show, and he wants to do it with Michael Palin. So that's basically how they all get together. Uh, John Cleese has offered a show. He wants to do a show with Michael Palin. They all come aboard. He, the, uh, apparently John and Graham really liked do not adjust your set. Um, and they went to the BBC and they had a meeting with, uh, whoever was in charge. And apparently it was a very, very odd meeting. They were asked, uh, various questions, you know, are you going to do, uh, you know, what's the show going to be about? We don't know. What's, what's the title of the show? We, we don't know. Uh, are you going to do everything in the studio? Will you will you do some stuff on film? Yeah, we'll probably do some stuff on film. We we don't really know. Will there be songs? Uh, probably not. I don't know. Maybe we we don't really know. Okay, well we'll give you thirteen episodes, but that's it. And that's how it started. So the first episode of Monty Python aired on October fifth, nineteen sixty nine, which means next year will be their fiftieth anniversary. <laughs> Tonight, the mouse problem. This week, the world around us examines the growing social phenomenon of mice and men. What is it that makes a man want to be a mouse? Well, uh, it's not a question of wanting to be a mouse. Uh, it just sort of happens to you. Um, all of a sudden, you realise, well, that's what you want to be. <laughs> when did you first notice these, shall we say, tendencies? Well... I was about 17 and uh, some mates of me went along to a party and, you know, uh, we had a lot to drink. And then, well, some of the fellows there uh, started handing cheese around and <laughs> just out of curiosity I tried a bit. <laughs> and that was that. And what else did these fellows do? Well, some of them started uh, dressing up as mice a bit and... <laughs> Then when they got the mouse costumes on, uh, they started squeaking. Their second series, they, they did a total of four series of uh, what we would call seasons in America uh, of the show with a total of 45 episodes. So the first series was 13 episodes and that aired in 1969. In 1970, the second series aired on September 15th and that also contained 13 episodes. 
1970 is also when they uh, did their first live performance. They also became known as live performers. They did a, a number of different live performances. Um, and the first show was a, it was a benefit show in London. And that was also the year that they released their first album. So in 1970, second season airs, they performed their first live show and they released their first comedy album. And the first comedy album was just called Monty Python's Flying Circus and was, was ultimately just a collection of sketches from the first series done on audio. In 1971, they released their second album. It's called Another Monty Python Record. It's more uh, sketches and whatnot from the series, um, but it's a little, it's a, it's more high quality than the first album. They also perform live at the Lanchester Arts Festival, and uh, they also released a movie called A Now for Something Completely Different. And um, this apparently was made mainly for the American audiences, um, but it didn't do very well. I really enjoy the movie. It, it like the album, the two albums before it, is just a collection of sketches from the first two series that they um, they filmed. And it's it, like I said, it didn't apparently it didn't go over too well, didn't didn't make a lot of money, but it's it's I, I really enjoy it. And uh, my daughter recently saw some of it on TV and she really enjoyed it, too. In 1972, they released their third album, Monty Python's previous record, and they performed live at the Great Western Express Festival, which was a four day event in Lincolnshire. 1973 is when their third series airs. So it was on October 19th, and like the previous two, was 13 episodes total. They released another album that year called Matching Tie and Handkerchief, and it was a it was something that they thought they were doing that was that they assumed had never been done before, but found out that it had been done once before. But this was a record that had three sides, and by that by that what I mean is on the second side of the record there were two different grooves. So depending on where you put the needle, for those of you who remember records, you could get one of the two grooves and listen to uh, one of two, what they refer to as sides. And if you get it on CD nowadays or digitally, you'll just, you know, you wouldn't even know the difference. It just has three uh, tracks, basically. Uh, but back then, people would go to side two and they'd put the needle on, and then, and then maybe the next day they want to listen to it again. They put the needle on and they get something completely different. They had, they had no idea at first what was going on, but uh, but eventually people people caught on. So also in 1973, uh, they they actually started touring their first uh, tours of the UK live, and their first tours of uh, in Canada. They toured Canada. They called that their farewell tour, the first of their farewell tours in Canada. Now, something about uh, Series 3 that needs to be talked about is apparently after Season 2, John Cleese did not want to continue making the show. He had been doing TV much longer than the rest of them. He had been performing on TV much longer than the rest of them by maybe a year or so. And he apparently felt that they had begun to repeat themselves. So he did not, he, he told the fellas that he didn't want to uh, continue with the third series. But they were told by the BBC that if he's not, if he's not going to continue, they don't, they don't want to do the show anymore. And eventually John Cleese decided, you know, for, for the rest of the guys, I will continue to do the show because I, I would hate to take that away from them. So they, they do their third series. 1974 rolls around, however, and they do series number four, which was only six episodes 
and John Cleese was not in it. So apparently when they were doing, when they were touring Canada, he announced to the, to the rest of the group, it's like, I'm not, I'm not doing a fourth season. I'm just not, I can't, or a fourth series. I can't do it. And the rest of them got together and talked and they decided, well, I, we think we can, we can go forward without John and, and, uh, they only did six episodes to see how it would work. And in the end, they just, they just never went back to it. Now I will say that a couple of my favorite episodes are in season four. There's some, there is some good stuff in season four. Uh, the golden age of ballooning is in season four. Mr. Neutron is in season four and that's some good stuff. Uh, so while the series did suffer without John, it still had some great stuff in it. So also in 94, uh, they performed live at Drury Lane, which they recorded, and you can buy that as an album as well. But then 1975 hits, and we get Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail, which is probably their most well-known movie. Anyone who has ever seen any of their movies, anyone who's not a, just a huge, giant Monty Python fan, you ask them what their favorite Monty Python movie is, nine times out of ten, people will tell you it's the Holy Grail. It's not my favorite, but it is a good movie. They also released the trail, the, the soundtrack for the Holy Grail that year, and it's a wonderful soundtrack. It is not, as one would surmise, soundtrack album is not just music from the movie. It's actually audio clips from sketches from the movie, but there's also a lot of, of new stuff that they recorded especially for the soundtrack album. And some of that stuff is it's just really, really funny. It's very hilarious. Uh, so if you if you don't have that, you should you should get it because it's it's well worth your purchase. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's got... some lovely filth down here! Oh, how'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. <laughs> 1976, Monty Python performs live for the first time in America, in New York. And then there's not much going on with them until 1979 when we see the release of The Life of Brian. This is my favorite of their movies. And it tells the tale of Brian, who is born just down the road from Jesus. And when he becomes an adult, he is mistaken for the Messiah. It was banned in theaters. It was protested in America. And in England, and it was it was it was a very controversial movie, uh, but it is the best of theirs as far as I'm concerned. They also released a soundtrack for that as well, and it's got some new stuff in it. Not as much as the Holy Grail. Basically, when they were putting these soundtracks out, you know, they wanted to uh, 
do audio clips from the movies. So ultimately, they're just doing audio sketches on the album. And so they needed stuff to link them together. For the Holy Grail soundtrack, they wrote new sketches and performed them to link the sketches from the movie together. In Life of Brian, it's more, uh, I think it's just Eric Idle and Graham Chapman. And it's as if they are in the studio. Eric Idle is the engineer. Graham Chapman is the, the voice talent. And his job is to link the sketches together. But there, those are, that's some pretty funny stuff. Link. It does <laughs> says link here. What are, um, doesn't say anything else. I'm sorry, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll deal with this. Nigel. Can you? Yes, he just wants to know what's going on. <clears throat> leak, link, link. Yes, uh, this is uh, just Might a... Might be leak. No, it's Link. We just wanted you to link all the bits together. You see, what we've got is a film, yes, and uh, it doesn't make much sense, uh, well, you know, just on a record. More fool you. Well, yes, uh, luckily it's a sort of nonsense-type comedy group who yes. are doing this, oh, so I it doesn't see. really matter, you know, yes. the kids yes. tend to like this sort yes. of stuff. Yes. But uh, what we really need to do is link a few of the odd scenes together. Right, And right. Uh, we Can want do. you to, yes. to, to do it. Yes. Okay. In 1980, we get their contractual obligation album, which is literally they realized that they st they were contractually obligated to put out another album, and so they called it the contractual obligation album. Um, it's a pretty good album. It's mostly songs. It's got some good songs on it. You're going to hear some of those songs, uh, not all of them, and not in total. I'm not going to play the entire song uh, in the in the podcast. And I'm actually quite nervous that I'll get in trouble for playing them. You've probably heard one already, but who knows? If not, I'll play one now. Finland, Finland, Finland The country where I want to be Pony trekking or camping Or just watching TV Finland, Finland, Finland It's the country for me You're so near to Russia So far from Japan Quite a long way from Cairo Lots of miles from Vietnam Finland, Finland, Finland The country where I want to be Eating breakfast or dinner or smack lunch in the hall Finland, Finland, Finland Finland has it all You're so sadly neglected And often ignored a Okay, also in 1980 uh, Monty Python performs live at the Hollywood Bowl I think it was four or five nights And many American celebrities showed up To watch them perform uh, Hollywood Bowl is, of course, in L.A. In 1982, they released the film Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl, um, which you can watch now on Netflix if you want to. 1983, we see their final movie, The Meaning of Life, which was probably their worst. Most people agree it's, it's the, the worst of all of their films, and yet some of my favorite things come from that movie. The uh, there's a particular scene with Michael Palin as a uh, military commander who is ordering his men to march up and down the square. And it is one of the funniest things that Monty Python has ever put out there. 
That, of course, also came with the soundtrack, which uh, had even fewer new things on it than The Life of Brian, if any, now that I think about it. I'm trying to remember what it's been a while since I've even listened to it. So I I kind of I honestly can't remember exactly what is on that soundtrack, except for audio clips from the movie. 1989 sees the 20th anniversary of Monty Python. First episode aired in 1969 and 1989, we get the 20th anniversary and they put together uh, a thing called parrot sketch, not included 20 years of Monty Python, which is semi hosted by um, Steve Martin. I feel like it was on Showtime. Uh, That's, it was on one of the, the Showtime or HBO, something like that. I feel like I watched it on that back then. Um, but it's a collection of sketches, uh, best of, basically, from them. And um, it includes two clips from two of their German episodes, which I actually didn't include in my timeline because I've only seen the German episodes twice. Um, one of them is literally entirely in German. They did two episodes of the show for Germany. One of the episodes, they they actually speak German in the entire episode, and there are um, there are captions to read. The other one, um, I think I think they speak English in that one with German captions. But it's been a while since I've seen them. But they put two clips from those shows in this 20th anniversary special. And it was billed as something that you have never seen before from Monty Python. You know, unless you lived in Germany, I suppose. Um, Also in 1989, we had uh, tragedy. Uh, Graham Chapman passed away in 1989, uh, literally the day before their 20th anniversary. So he died on October 10th, or I'm sorry, October 4th, 1989 uh, from cancer-related illness. And, um, you can, you can go in on, you you can go in on YouTube and find, uh, clips of the eulogy that John Cleese gave at the funeral. And it's actually quite funny, um, because they all know, knew that that's what Graham would want. And so with the, with the parrot sketch, not included special, that was their 20th anniversary special, you know, that was basically the last time that all six of the original of, of the, the core members of Monty Python were together for a show in 1998. We're going to skip forward to 1998 because nothing happened in the world at all between 89 and 98. The surviving five members of Monty Python, uh, got together at the Aspen comedy festival in Aspen, Colorado for a special called live at Aspen. Um, you can also see that on Netflix. Um, and it's uh, the five of them with um, a moderator who it was is a big name comedian, but I can't think of his name for some reason. But it's pretty funny. They actually have six chairs set out, um, if I remember correctly. I know they brought out an urn that was supposed to contain Graham's ashes. And at one point, one of them accidentally, and I'll use accidentally with air quotes, knocks it over. And then a, a man, a butler, basically comes out with a, a dustbuster and cleans up his ashes. 1999 uh, sees something that I have never seen before called Python Night, 30 Years of Monty Python. I don't, I don't remember ever hearing of this until I looked up the timeline. 
2002, they get back together for the concert for George at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Uh, this was a tribute to George Harrison. George Harrison had died, and uh, George Harrison was a huge Monty Python fan. He's actually the reason we got The Life of Brian, uh, because The Life of Brian, the movie studio that was going to make it, it, it they had... They'd made the deal. They had gotten up to the point where they had actually started spending money. The the Monty Python had started spending money to scout locations and hire extras and, and, and whatnot. And then somebody way up high in the movie studio read the script and said, we're not doing this movie. This is blasphemy, sacrilegious. And so they, they pulled out of the contract, which, of course, they got sued for. Monty Python won. But it didn't matter because they didn't have any money to make this movie. And, and in the end, George Harrison stepped up and said, I'll pay for the movie. Uh, he didn't just have, it was like four or five million dollars, four or five million pounds that he needed to make the movie. He didn't just have four or five million pounds laying around. Apparently, he mortgaged the house and something else to, to get a bank loan. Uh, and the reason he did it was because he wanted to see the movie. And in doing so, created a film studio called Handmade Films which has made other movies. So in 2009, we get a, a live performance called Not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy, which I have, I started to watch. I haven't watched it all. It does involve uh, Life of Brian, but there seems to be more to it. And then in 2014, we got Monty Python Live, mostly one down, five to go. This was at the O2 in London. Um, it was their... It was live reunion with uh, them performing live that they did primarily because they needed the money uh, to settle, to pay for um, lawyer fees. Somebody, somebody apparently involved with the Holy Grail sued Monty Python over uh, something he felt he deserved royalties from the, from the Spamalot. And... Apparently it was fought, you know, they contested it. They didn't feel like he deserved any money off of it. And six years, they, they fought it for six years. And in the end they won, but they spent so much in legal fees that they had somebody come in and look at all their books. And, and, and the guy said, no, you guys are, you guys are practically broke. You're not going to, you're not going to recover from this unless you do something to make money. And this guy actually suggested, you know, if you performed live one night, Got back together and performed live one night. You would sell enough tickets to pay, to 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 pay all these legal fees, and they did five nights. So um, there's a there's a really good documentary about that on um, Netflix um, called Monty Python: The Meaning of Live, and in it Terry Jones talks about or not Terry Jones. Terry Gilliam basically says, you know, we made money um, in Monty Python, but we never did it for the money. Whenever we'd make a movie or we'd perform live, you know, of course we got paid, but that was not our sole reason for doing it. This, the sole reason for doing this is to make money. Um, and, you know, I watched most of that and I, I have yet to finish it. I need to finish that. That is also on um, Netflix. So that's just, that's a, like I said, that is a brief history. There is so much that I'm not touching on. Um, other players that you need to be aware of. I'm, I'm, I'm only going to mention Carol Cleveland. She shows up in, I think, the second episode of the first series. They did a uh, sketch called Marriage Guidance Counselor in which they needed a, a sexy woman. 
And typically, if there was a, a, a part for a woman to be played, they would play it themselves. But they needed, the, the purpose of the, the sketch needed a sexy woman. So they'd hired Carol Cleveland, and apparently she was supposed to only be in five episodes, but they liked her so much, they felt that she was, she performed so well in the episodes that she was in, that she truly got what Monty Python was trying to do, that they just kept her on. And she's she's been in all four series. Uh, she performed with them. She went with them when they performed live. She was in the Holy Grail. Um, God, was she in the life of Brian? Trying to remember if she was in the life of Brian and the meaning of life, but she was, she is with them at their, uh, re, their 2014 reunion. So that's Monty Python in a nutshell. Uh, like I said, there's a lot more that I could talk about, but I'm not going to do that on this episode. Uh, instead, let's take a little break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about my history with Monty Python. Beethoven's gone, but his music lives on, and Mozart don't go shopping no more. You'll never meet Liszt or Brahms again, and Elgar doesn't answer the door. Schubert and Chopin used to chuckle and laugh, whilst composing a long symphony. But 150 years later, there's very little of them left to see. They're decomposing composers, there's nothing much anyone can do. You can still hear Beethoven, but Beethoven cannot hear you. So my mom likes to tell the story that she was seven, eight, nine months pregnant with me when my dad took her, drug her, dragged her to the theater to see the Holy Grail. And she didn't enjoy it at all because she was uncomfortable. And the last place she wanted to be that far along was sitting in a, a, a movie theater seat. And for a long time, I believed that story. Not that she was lying, but... When I started reading uh, the a lot of the, the books about Monty Python and watching the documentaries and stuff, Holy Grail was not released until 75, and I was born in 72. So, but she's adamant that she was watching a Monty Python movie when she was pregnant with me. Um, so that had to have been, and now for something completely different. So while it came out in 71, uh, it was still in theaters in America in 72, um, and what that tells me is that, uh, my dad was a fan of Monty Python. I know he's a fan of Monty Python because he's the reason I started watching Monty Python, but that, that is where my journey with Monty Python begins. It begins in the womb, inside my mother's tummy, listening to these British voices saying silly things on a movie screen. That's where my journey... Yeah, I use the word journey. I hate the word journey unless you're talking about the band. That's where my journey began. The first time I recall encountering Monty Python, however, my dad was watching the Holy Grail on TV. I don't remember if they were playing it on one of the movie channels. Um, I would have been maybe 10 or 11 
it would have been, uh, I mean, we're talking the eighties. I don't recall if they, if, if they played it on TV, if it was on PBS, if it was on HBO, if he had rented the movie, uh, this could be right after we got our first VCR. We did have a, a little shop in, in our small town that rented videos. There were also video rental places in the larger town, uh, to our West. So my dad could have very well just rented the movie to, to watch it. But I recall walking, uh, through the room in which he was watching the movie in, uh, I was heading down to the basement to play with toys, but something on the screen caught my eye. There were these two men dressed as knights and they were fighting with swords. And, uh, I was way into knights with swords. So I stopped, I stopped and watched, I paused uh, before going down to the basement and my dad didn't, I don't recall him saying anything to me or saying, you shouldn't be watching this son or anything like that. And before I know it, uh, one of these knights, uh, you know, one is a black knight, one is a green knight. The black knight throws his sword at the green knight and it stabs through the green knight's visor out through the back of his helmet, blood spurts. You can hear the man choking on his own blood. I was shocked and amazed my father starts to laugh. And so now I'm even more curious and I, I keep watching. I haven't sat down at this point. And then here's this man on the screen with a crown. He is a king and he rides up to the black knight, but I'm watching and I'm noticing he's not riding a horse. He's prancing about as if he's riding a horse. And there's a man behind him uh, with coconuts, making two empty halves of coconuts, and he's banging them together, and he's he's making the sound of hoofbeats, and it, and and I couldn't help but laugh at this point. I what, what is this? What is going on here? This is the weirdest thing I have ever seen. And at that point, I go and I sit down on the couch, and this king starts fighting the black knight, and before I know it, he cuts off the black knight's arm. Blood spurts out of his arm. Again, I'm shocked and amazed because it seems like a very violent act. But my father, again, is laughing. And the way the Black Knight reacts to this limb being hacked off, he acts as if it's no big deal. And so that, of course, makes me start laughing. And I watch the entire scene with the Black Knight. And my father and I are both almost in tears by the end of it. And uh, I don't really remember much else about the movie except for the French knights throwing a cow over the castle wall. Now, of course, since then, I have seen the movie so often that I could probably recite it to you front to back. Maybe I'd probably get stuff stuck in a few bits. But that is that was my introduction to Monty Python. Now, eventually, I discovered the episodes on PBS. They didn't play all the episodes on PBS for some reason, or I wasn't at an age to realize what day and what time they would play it, or maybe it changed a lot. But I know that uh, I didn't see all the episodes on PBS. Uh, I know that for a fact because um, eventually I got an album, uh, a CD that had a certain sketch on it that was from the TV show. And I didn't realize it was, it was from the TV show until I had the entire collection on video. Anyway, so I'm hooked on Monty Python and I would catch the odd episode now and again on TV, but I don't know. I feel like maybe they only had series one. Maybe 
I don't know. They just, I didn't see all the episodes on PBS, though I, I have a memory of watching them a lot on PBS. Half a bee, philosophically, must ipso facto half not be. But half the bee has got to be a vis-a-vis its entity. Do you see? But can a bee be said to be, or not to be, an entire bee, when half the bee is not a bee, due to some ancient injury? Singing. A la dee dee, a one, two, three, Eric the half a bee, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Cut to my senior year of high school. I'm still, I still really enjoy Monty Python. I've probably seen the Holy Grail by that point a couple times. I'm sure I've seen, um, and now for something completely different. I don't know about Life of Brian or Meaning of Life because technically those are both rated R, and I wasn't at an age yet where I could rent rated R movies. But I, I don't know. My memory is is very horrible, really, when it comes to a lot of stuff. But at my senior year of high school, a friend, uh, talks me into joining forensics. If you're not sure what forensics is, it's like a, it's like a dramatic, uh, sports competition. You have, uh, people who do poetry, spoken word, duet acting, improvised acting, and you have all these folks from one school. They go to tournaments and compete at other schools and they do their little poetry readings or their little five minute uh, two-person uh, dramas and whatnot, and then they're judged, and people win gold medals and whatnot. I wasn't really interested. I'd never really done any acting. Uh, but the way he convinced me was we could do a scene from the Holy Grail. And I said, on, I'm in there, man. Let's do this. And uh, it may have been actually my junior year, now that I think about it. I don't... My memory is terrible. Uh, but... You had a certain time limit that you had to meet. You're, for duet acting, you did a scene that could, it couldn't be over a certain amount of time, but it had to be, it had to be, there was a minimum and a maximum and you had to fall somewhere in between. And our idea, the first thing we had thought of was we were going to do the Black Knight scene, but that by itself was not long enough. So we had managed to take the constitutional peasant scene which, if you're not aware just by the title, if you've seen the movie, there's a point where Arthur is is riding along on his pretend horse, and he comes upon a man pulling a wagon, and he says, Old woman! And the guy says, Man! Man, sorry! Whose knight? What, what knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37! What? I'm 37! I'm not old! Anyway, you remember that, that one if you've seen the movie. So we managed to combine that with the Black Knight scene. I played the Black Knight... And the Black Knight said those lines that uh, Dennis says, well, you could call me Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. And I also, and the Black Knight also did the lines from Dennis's wife. Um, now, at the time, forensics rules were rather lax. Nowadays, because my son, and it comes full circle, uh, last year he started forensics for the first time and he did duet acting with a friend and they did the parrot sketch and they were almost not going to let them do the parrot sketch because apparently now in forensics if you want to do a scene it has to be written down somewhere it has to be a published scene in script format somewhere and well they have released 
the uh, the Monty Pythons, all the Monty Python episodes, they've released books with all the scripts, so they were able to do it. Um, and while they did have a script book for the Holy Grail, I don't think they would have allowed us because we cobbled different scenes together if those rules today were applied back then. But they did. And you know what? The first meet, we won a gold medal. We never did that well for the rest of the year. But that first meet, we got a gold medal, and I lettered for the first time in high school. Uh, so when my English teacher at the time, it was my senior year because it was my senior English teacher, when she found out what we were doing, she loaned me her copy of the soundtrack to the Holy Grail on record. And the first thing I did when I took it home was made a tape of it. And I listened to it over and over and over again. Um, and that helped me get more and more into Monty Python. Uh, eventually after forensics, uh, the Christmas after, uh, a guy that I worked with at a Sonic drive-in, he was older than me. We had gone into Kansas city to do some Christmas shopping. Uh, and while I was at a, at a CD store, I ran across this two disc set called Monty Python's final ripoff. And it was a best of, of all of their, um, their albums. And I took it home. I bought it for myself. I took it home and we got home late. I'm still living at home at the time because I was I was still in high school. Um, and I was in bed listening to the CD with my headphones on. And I ran and I just there were so much there was so much good stuff on that. And I was on the one hand trying not to laugh out loud for fear of waking up the rest of the house. Now, on the other hand, I was angry because this some of these sketches we could have done for forensics other than you know the argument sketch would have been a perfect one for forensics uh but you know in the end we of course didn't because i didn't discover these until then now this is this album though is how i know i didn't eventually i I hadn't seen all the episodes of monty python by that point because sometime after that um there was a a uh, a video store in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, they're still there called Liberty Hall. I don't know if they still rent DVDs or anything, but they're, it's a movie theater and then they would rent, they had a, a storefront that would rent videos. And they had all of the, the, the episodes, all the video episodes. There were like two episodes per videotape. So you, you, you think about that. That's like, uh, now maybe there are four episodes per videotape, but we're talking 45 episodes, four episodes per video. And uh, event, I would go in and rent rent a couple of them at a time, and eventually I watched through the whole series, uh, all four series. But there was a, a a sketch that was on the final ripoff called the Fish License, which then uh, rolls into a song called Eric the Half a Bee, which if you haven't heard yet on the episode, you'll hear soon. But I remember watching the videotapes of the episodes and running across the Fish License sketch on the on the television show and being very disappointed with the version from the television show because the audio version is just so much funnier if you if you've seen both maybe you agree maybe you don't it probably depends on which one you've seen first but so eventually i i got all the all the episodes um there was uh comedy central at one point had gotten the rights to to play the episodes and they did i don't remember what year it was but it was for new year's they played them all back to back and I bought a bunch of, cause I, I, ha- I didn't own all the episodes at that point. I went out and bought a, a big stack of blank videotapes and I just spent all that time. I would, 
I'd, I'd put a videotape in and I'd hit record. And I knew that the videotape, I had it, had the VCR set. So it was like four hours or something. And so when it got overnight, I would put the videotape in when it was time. I'd hit record. I'd set an alarm for three and a half hours. I'd wake up. And then when it was time, I would change them out and then I'd go back to sleep. And I eventually had all the, had all the episodes on, on video. At some point, I did get them all on DVD, um, which I no longer have because life sometimes has you make choices and you have to sell certain things to, to pay for certain things. But, um, but it was sometime after high school that I then started to discover the books. They had um, a couple of books written by Kim Howard Johnson, um, Life Before and After Python. And uh, I'll put, I'm going to put all the titles of these books in the show notes because I don't, I don't have all this stuff in front of me. Actually, I've got my phone in front of me, so maybe I can just look them up real quick. But I think he only did two books uh, about Monty Python, and they were the first two Monty Python books that I had read. Um, let's see the first 28 years of Monty Python and life before and after Monty Python. But he also worked on a book called a now for something completely trivial, which was a book of trivia. I owned that for a, a while. I've since lost it. I owned the two books that contained all the scripts from the TV shows. I owned the book that contained the Holy Grail script. Um, then, uh, I was able to pick up at one point the the big biography that like it was it's almost an autobiography book that um, came out not that long well it doesn't feel like that long ago it was probably um, it's probably over a decade ago but I think it was just called um, Python Pythons on Python see this part I was not at all prepared for. But when it originally came out, it was just a huge freaking book. And, um, they, they did a second printing of it. Um, and it was, it was much smaller at that point. Uh, but that's, it's, it's through, it was through that, that I learned most of what I know now about Monty Python. But before I bought that book, I actually, uh, maybe 20 years ago, I started my very own Monty Python website. It was called Python Land. I had a message board. I had all kinds of members. And it, it was it was around the time that Spamalon came out, actually, before, before I ended up closing the place down because I had gotten an email from someone who was involved in making the soundtrack to Spamalot, and they wanted to send me a copy of the Spamalot soundtrack so I would write about it on the on the website. And they did, and I did, and it came with a little soft... You know those stress balls? It was like a stress ball, but it was a Monty Python foot. So that was pretty awesome. Um, but here's what we're going to do right now. I'm gonna We're going to take a little break because if you don't know, if this is the first time you're listening to one of my shows, I record the show out in my car during my lunch break. And it's, while it's only about 60 degrees out right now, sitting inside a car without the air conditioning on tends to get a little warm in 60 degree weather. So we're going to take a little break. I'm going to cool down. And then we'll come back and I will finish this segment of my history with Monty Python. Hey, 
Jim Manuel Camp was a real piss and it was very rarely stable. I digger, I digger was a boozy beggar if you think you under the table. David Hume could out consume Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel and Wittgenstein was a beery swine who was just a schlosh to schlagel. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach about the raising of the wrist. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. John Stuart Mill of his own free will, on hot one shot, he was particularly ill. Later this day, he could sing it away, after a whiskey every day. Okay, so two pieces of information I had gathered from reading all these Monty Python books, two pieces of information that did have an effect on my life for a number of years was the uh, the date in which the first episode of Monty Python aired, October 5th, 1969, and the date on which Graham Chapman died, October 4th, 1989. And when I first, they both, both these pieces of information were in, both were in, in, in the same book. <clears throat> and when I first ran across this information, it was, it, this was maybe, this was probably 20 years ago. And, uh, it, it was around the time, uh, I, I was single. I would be meeting my future wife, uh, soon, but I'd know that it was close to the month of October because once I had read that, I thought, okay, well, I need to do something each year to commemorate both of these dates. October 4th to honor the memory of Graham Chapman and October 5th to celebrate Monty Python entering our world. <clears throat> and so I asked for those two days off of work. They were both work days at the time. And then I spent that year, those two days that year, I spent both days doing nothing but watching Monty Python. I had all the episodes at that point. I owned all the movies uh, I had a uh, documentary. I had, I had enough Monty Python that I wouldn't watch, I wouldn't be able to watch all of it in those two days if I wanted to sleep. And if I wasn't at home watching Monty Python, if I had to run to the store to get something to eat, if I had to run to McDonald's or something, I had all the albums to listen to in my car. So th there was, I was doing nothing but watching or listening to Monty Python for those two days. And I did that for a few years, every year. I would take those two days off of work and that's all I would do. Uh, I think the year that I stopped that was the year, the first October, uh, after my first child was born. Um, because I had taken too much time off that year, uh, just around Simon being born. And I haven't done it since. And I should get back to it at some point because, uh, I would go the whole year without watching or listening to any Monty Python. And then just binge it all for those two days. And it was, it was a really good personal celebration to, to honor Grammar Chapman and to celebrate Monty Python. I had a Python land site, you know, about Monty Python going. I was super giant uber Monty Python nerd at the time. Uh, so to continue forward then with my life with Monty Python, following the birth of my first child, not a lot of Monty Python in my life. Uh, Karen gets pregnant with child number two. We know it's going to be a girl. And the idea of naming her Palin comes up. In the end, we didn't name her Palin after Michael Palin. Um, <clears throat> we named her after uh, somebody in the family. But then Karen gets pregnant for a third time. And I should say that when we were, when we were debating 
naming the second child, whose name is Rana, when we were debating naming her Palin, one of the reasons why uh, we actually kind of threw it out rather quickly, Karen and I were watching one of Michael Palin's travel programs together, and I don't remember where he was, but there was a, a live show being performed at whatever country he was in, and he was invited up to the stage, and they were they they whoever it was that announced him had never heard of him and was just reading his name off of a card and he pronounced his name as Michael Palin. So one of our concerns was we named this child Palin every day, every first day of school and the teacher is reading off a uh, role and getting used to all her students' names. She's going to refer to Palin as Palin. So we skipped on the name, but then Karen gets pregnant with the third child and it's like we didn't even... We didn't even give it any thought. She's going to be named Palin. That's just the way it's going to be. We, we, you know, we didn't think there wasn't a backup name. It's just, well, we, we're going to have a girl. What should we name her? Palin. Okay, let's do it. Well, what if they mispronounce her name? Who cares? We're going to name her Palin. And of course, that's what her name is. And then not long after she's born, Sarah Palin comes into the public eye. I'm not a political, I'm, I don't talk politics on this show. But I'm not a, I'm not a Sarah Palin fan. Uh, I only mention that because for a number of years now, around that time, whenever we would talk about our kids with somebody new, and our youngest is named Palin. She's named after Michael Palin, not Sarah Palin. That was something we would have to say each and every time. Um, still not a lot of Monty Python uh, after the children were born. Uh a, f a few years ago, I played the Holy Grail for all three of them for the first time, and they all really enjoyed it. Uh, Simon, of course, as I said last year, uh, was in forensics and did the, the Dead Parrot sketch. Uh, we saw him and his friend perform it, and they did a very good job. And then my last bit of Monty Python and me just recently, and by recently, I'm talking maybe six months ago, maybe even more, my brother-in-law calls me out of the blue, Karen's older brother, and he tells me that uh, he's gotten a couple of tickets to an event in Topeka, and he wants to know if I want to go. I say, okay, well, what is it? You know, right away, I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to go. I work two jobs. I don't like to leave the house for any reason. So I'm already trying to think up reasons why, you know, how I'm going to say no to him. He tells me, well, there's a, there's a, a, a place on campus in Manhattan. Um, yeah, I said Topeka. No, man, he's, he lives in Topeka. There's a place on campus, K-State in Manhattan. They're going to be screening the Holy Grail. And I said, oh, that, that'll be fun. But again, I'm thinking, I don't, I've seen the movie uh, a bunch of times. He goes, and then John Cleese will be there to answer questions afterwards. And I said, I am so there. What is the date? And uh, originally I was going to take my dad because he said he had two tickets. So he wanted me, you know, me and one of my, one of my kids. I said, well, do you mind if I ask my dad? You know, the, I got into Monty Python because I walked in on my dad watching the Holy Grail. So to take my dad to go see the Holy Grail and see John Cleese speak, it would be full circle. And I call my dad and I tell him about it. And he's like, well, where is it? I said, Manhattan. He goes, no, I don't want to go. 
said, you don't want to go see John Cleese? No, nah, that's too long. That's too far of a drive. <laughs> and it is. It's Well, it's about an hour and a half, maybe. I said, okay. So uh, the next logical option was Palin. We thought maybe we would get an opportunity because he was going to ask questions. He, he was going to answer questions. We thought we'd get an opportunity to uh, ask him a question and let him know that she is named after Michael Palin. We never got that opportunity uh, because apparently there was a table set up. This was in a big theater with a stage with a movie screen behind it. And out in the lobby, there was a table with uh, sheets of paper that you were supposed to write your questions on beforehand. So, and we didn't see it, so we never got a chance to. But uh, we get there, and we are not only in the front row, we're front row center. Watching the movie that close was fairly uncomfortable, and yet I had never seen the Holy Grail in a movie theater packed in a movie theater period, much less packed with people who lo also love the movie. So while I had seen the movie dozens and upon dozens upon dozens of times before, there's something about watching a movie like that in a room with a hundred or so people who all love it just as much as you do, who all laugh at the same jokes that you do. And it's just, there's an energy. I hate ugh. There's an energy in the room. It's the, the laughter is infectious. The jokes seem funnier. It was, oh my God, it was such a good time just watching that with all those people. Even though we really had to sit with our heads craned all the way back to see the whole screen. But it was worth it because then John Cleese came out and he was, he was within spitting distance from me. He was right there. And the key moment of the night is that at one point he was talking about how much he hates children and how children are terrible and they're, they're just, they're, what's the point to children and blah, blah, blah. And as he's saying this, he looks down in the front row and he sees my daughter next to me and he goes, not you, dear. You're wonderful. You're, you're, you're perfect. And that was the key moment, Palin, to this, you know, John, please talk to me, you know, and she, uh, just recently this month, with all of the Monty Python being put on Netflix, she and I have started sat down and started watching the episodes. The other kids don't really care. Simon and Rana enjoy when they watch some of it, but they don't they don't care. Palin, on the other hand, last year I was in the kitchen uh, making lunch or something, and, and Karen was back in the bedroom, and she comes out and she goes, "Turn to channel four point three or something," and I said, "Okay," and I turn it and they're playing uh and now for something completely different on tv so i went into the i finished up making the lunch for everybody the movie had just started i went in and sat down and the the kids were watching i don't remember i think it was just palin she was watching something i said let's let's uh let me turn over to this and you if you don't want to watch it you know i just want to watch a little bit of it she says okay and so we watched some of it until the first commercial and the commercial comes on i said okay do you want to go back to your show and she goes no Let's finish watching this. I think it's kind of interesting. So she had gotten a taste of Monty Python at that point. So when all the episodes came up, she wanted to watch them with me. So we've been watching the episodes together. And I don't, there was one particular sketch. I don't remember what it was, but it was them being incredibly silly about something. And I just kind of laughed. I said, that is so stupid. And she goes, no, it's not stupid. It's amazing. And so I've, I've hooked another one. My daughter is, is way into Monty Python. Like I said, the other two enjoy it, but they're not, I don't think they're going to be big Python nerds like I am. Um, 
Now, this would be the point, I guess, in the episode where we would move over to the third section, which is my top five favorite Monty Python sketches. But my lunch has run over, and it's getting really hot in the car, and I really didn't do a lot of preparation for the third sketch. So here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you um, – did I say for the third sketch? I meant the third segment. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell you my all-time favorite Monty Python sketch that beats out anything that's in all the TV shows, all the albums – all the movies, all the books, my top number one go-to, it's the fish slapping dance. If you have not seen the fish slapping dance, I urge you to go on YouTube and YouTube it. Fish, Monty Python fish, fish slapping dance. It's out there on YouTube. It's very short. There are actually no words spoken in the entire thing. It's Michael Palin and John Cleese dressed up like British explorers in khaki shorts and khaki shirts with their pith helmets on. And they're standing on a, a dock of some sort next to a body of water. And Michael Palin is slapping John Cleese in the face with tiny fish. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends. But it's just, like I said, it's not very long at all. It might be 30 seconds. But it is the silliest thing that has ever been put to film. And it's one of the reasons I adore it so much is the thought of them getting out there, putting on the costumes, getting the fish, getting a film crew, and spending the time just to put that on film. If you've seen it, you understand what I mean. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Because uh, I may even have it in the, in the show notes on the website because it is probably the single greatest moment of comedy in all of human history. And that's my Monty Python episode. So I want to thank you all for taking the time to visit my little corner of the web and giving this episode a really good listen. What'd you think? Do you want me to do more Monty Python? Was that just a little too much for you? Let me know. Tell me if you want me to do more. Tell me if you, you never want me to talk about Monty Python again. There's a really easy way you can do that. You can shoot me an email over at stevenrls at gmail.com or you can just leave a comment over the site at uh, stevenrls.com. The intro and outro for this episode is Expendable by Trinity X. Find it and other music from the band at atomiczombierecords.bandcamp.com. The music that played under the sponsorship ad is Plue Parenthetical Polka by George Harab. Check him out at georgeharab.com. And so I bid you adieu. I urge you all to go out and spend some quality time with Monty Python. If it's not your thing, then don't worry about it. If it's kind of your thing, make it more your thing this month. And we'll get together again next month, or next year at this time in October, and we'll celebrate Monty Python all over again. But until then, and until next week, I'm Steven, you're you, and this was my podcast. Later.
Bye, Daddy. Bye, bye, Daddy. Good job. Yay.